0: Welcome to the Faith Broadcast. I'm so glad that you're watching today's message. I believe it'll be a blessing to you. I believe it'll encourage you. It'll strengthen you and empower you to make Jesus famous in your everyday life. Enjoy today's message, and I'll see you at the end of the broadcast.
1: Amen. Well, guys, I'm not Pastor Carrick. Um, I'm uh, Minister Cam. I'm the youth pastor here. Oh, you guys can sit down. I'm not used to this, so, you know, giving instructions, so... Uh, it's good good to be in the house of the Lord today. I am the youth pastor here. A few of my youth are on the side. Hey, guys, good to have you in here. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm deeply humbled and honored whenever I'm asked to come up here. I'm humbled and I, I relish in the opportunity to share God's word. I love talking about Jesus Christ and, and what he's done for us. Um, and it's something I never take for granted. I'll be completely remiss, firstly, if I didn't acknowledge the man and woman of this house, Pastor Carrick and Lady Raquel. Yes, let's give them a yes, the standing. Oh, I love it. Uh, finally, being out of the seats and on the other side of it, I, I recognize how much goes into this. And as Pastor Kirk says all the time, we have one of the hardest-working pastors, a man of God I've ever seen in my life, guys. The work he puts into this, um, every he's involved in every piece of every area of this church, and all he wants is to fulfill everything that God has called him and his wife to do. So uh, we are blessed to be under such a great, powerful man of God. Amen, 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 amen. amen. Um, also, I wanna acknowledge a very special person in here, very special persons in here. My wife is way in the back, Hey, okay. it's, it's the woman holding two children under two years old, right, that's, that's her. Um, yeah, so I always like to give you guys an update. I mean, we are a family here. I treat you guys as my family, so I love giving you guys family updates. So we have a four-year-old son, a uh, almost two-year-old son, and a four-month-old son. So pray. I heard the wow. Pray for us. Don't just say wow. Pray for us, right? We need it. We need a lot of personalities in that house. But man, I'm blessed, man, and I'm, I'm I love I love it. And uh, hey, boo. There you go. So this is the month of miracles, right? Um, how many of you have been experiencing that that miracle working power of God this month of July? Amen. Amen, I know I have, right? And I, and I stand 10 toes down in it, and I receive everything it is that God has for me. In my life, this is the month of miracles. And I, I know once Pastor Carrick announced that it was a month of miracles, immediately I started thinking about how it was when I first started being serious about you know my faith walk. I, I was saved since I was six years old, but it wasn't until I was a little bit older where I really started to take this thing serious. And one question that I always ask myself, specifically dealt with the topic of miracles, right? And I would always ask myself, God, and maybe you guys have asked yourself this question as well, but why isn't it that you open YouTube or social media and you see billions upon billions of miracles happening every minute, of every second, of every single day. Like, why isn't it a miracle happening all the time, right? Because then everyone will believe, right? If a miracle happened, you fly over, you verify, yep, it's a miracle, I believe it now, right? I always dealt with that question like, God, why won't you just do that, right? It seems like that's what you did in the Bible, every single page, every time I turned it, it was another miracle, people believed, right? So why won't you just do that now, right? It wasn't until I matured in my faith and I started to truly understand who God was and who Jesus was, where I found the answers to those questions. And I'm gonna share those with you today, okay? Um, This is years of me trying to figure this out and hopefully I'll try to pack it down into one hour and we all get an understanding as to who Jesus is and why. One of the important things is maybe, just maybe, that that's not a priority to God. Because the assumption to the question is, or was, that I was asking myself, is that God wakes up in the morning and he says to himself, how can I prove to people that I exist? How can I prove to the skeptic, the Muslim, the Hindu, the Buddhist, how can I prove to them that I'm the one true God, right? That's the, that's the assumption of the question, that that's who God is, right? That's who we formulate him to be in our 21st century West, Western idea that God needs to just show up, show a miracle, and people will believe, right? Let me just do something cool and everyone will believe. And maybe God has a billion, a hundred billion different galaxies that he's sovereign over, and maybe that's more of a priority to him. Because you have to ask yourself the question, if, let's just imagine, let's do a thought experiment really quick. If that was priority to God, to prove to people that he exists, how many would agree that he's doing a really bad job at it, right? If that was his priority, to prove to people that he's real, he's doing a bad job at it, right? So we have to ask ourselves, well, just maybe that's not his priority. Right? Maybe that's not what God is all about. Maybe that's not why he sent down the Torah and the evangelists, the gospel, and the New Testament. Maybe that's not why he sent all those Old Testament prophets to us, just to prove to us that he's real. Right? And when you read the scriptures, what I read and what I read is a God who's truly concerned with his glory. Right? He's concerned with his name. He's concerned with us as his sons and daughters in, in his kingdom. He's He's concerned with his name being great. Right? Maybe. The proof is not who he is, right? And when we come across those passages where we see that God wants to relish in his glory, maybe it should change us, right? Who should change when we read those scriptures? Is it us or is it God, right? We should change, right? Of what we formulated God to be. I know this is, I'm I'm really just trying to pack up everything that I've been thinking about all these years. And when we look at the teachings of Jesus, right? And he talks about these parables, and for years, guys, I didn't even understand what those parables meant, right? I was just like, what do these stories mean? And even Jesus would say that he would hide a message within these parables, and the reason for that is because he wanted us to get close to these scriptures. He really wanted us to open them up, have an intimate type of relationship with what he's saying, and formulate truly who he is, and not just some bang, show a miracle, I'm God type of thing. That's not what he wants. He wants us to be close to him, right? So he hides it within those parables. But Jesus understood something. He understood something. And when you see this, we will see this today throughout our message. Jesus understood something. That on the other side of the miraculous, on the other side of those miracles, needed to be a foundational faith. Right. On the other side of a miracle, it needs to be foundational faith because the moment that miracle doesn't happen, what happens to the faith? Right. Jesus understood that if I do not perform a miracle or if the miracle doesn't happen, the people's faith is fleeting. It's just going to go away. Well, maybe God isn't real. Right. If people only believe because of a miracle, then they have nothing to stand on. Right. So that's what God is trying to convey throughout the scripture, and that's what we're going to talk about. So God is saying that this miracle thing, while wow, it's amazing, I love miracles from God, right? I love experiences, experiencing his, his dunamis power, his glory, his presence. But Jesus is saying it requires something a little bit deeper, right? Just a little bit deeper. We're going to explore two, two aspects of this today. Firstly, we're going to explore Why is it that God performs miracles? Why is it, right? He doesn't have to, he doesn't owe us anything. Why is it that he performs miracles? And the second thing we're gonna look at is what we need to do to prepare ourselves for that miracle, amen? Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, firstly, just thank you for this day. We're alive, we're breathing. And we have this amazing opportunity to come before your throne. And we do so with boldness, knowing that our words do not fall on deaf ears, but they fall upon the ears of a God who is truly concerned with our well being. Heavenly Father, as we go throughout this message today, I pray that our eyes are open, our minds are open, our hearts are open, ready to receive everything that it is that you have for us today, Heavenly Father. May your will be done in this place. May your spirit touch our lives like never before. We have an expectation to experience the miraculous. Help us to learn and find out who you are, why you are, how you are, what you are. Every question we we may be having in our minds, Heavenly Father, help us to discover that in this moment. And we give you glory, honor, and praise for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, as I said before, I'm a youth pastor, so I like to like teach. So um, if you guys were expecting some type of hooping and hollering and me running around the stage, you're not gonna get that today, I'm sorry. Um, but what you will get is, is a little meat today, right? Who likes steak? I love steak. I know I, I don't look like it, but I love me a good slab of steak, right? That's what we're gonna get today, right? Um, and the first question we we're going to answer is why it is that God performs miracles. So if, if anyone has their Bibles, you can open it up. We're going to be starting at John. So in John, we're going to start in John chapter 2, but just giving you a brief context. John chapter 1, we, we are introduced to John It's probably one of my favorite, you shouldn't have favorite books in the Bible, but it's one of my favorite books in the Bible. Whenever someone asks me, someone who's not a strong believer or a pup in their faith, my teens even ask me where they should start, John, right? Start with John, because John chapter one kind of highlights who Jesus is, right? This is who Jesus is. He had this experience of living his life, his adult life with this man. Did anyone ever uh, meet someone who just changed your life forever, right? And you just wanted to tell everybody about who they are? Well, that's, that's who John is in John chapter one, right? He's, he's going off the testimony of John the Baptist, the, the, the testimony of the other disciples, his testimony as well. This is who Jesus is. I'm gonna wrap it up in a bow. Now you can have it, right? And then we pick up in John chapter two, Right? And this is when John's saying, well, you maybe don't just need testimony, verbal testimony, but let's give you some witness testimony of people who are around him and said, yeah, that Jesus guy, he is who he said he is, right? He is the son of God sent by the Father to save the world, right? And we're going to look at some of his works. The first miracle we're going to look at today is a miracle we've heard our entire lives, right? But when you start to look at the context, when you start to brush up against the scripture a little bit more, understand the context a little bit bit more, we start to understand and see why it is that God performs miracles. I love this story. I'm already excited before I even get into it. And it's when Jesus turned water to wine, right? We're gonna talk about that. So John chapter two, and we're just gonna start at verse one. Just give you a brief little context. So this is a wedding, right? It happens in a tiny village in Cana, right? And John, throughout his book, he only uh, includes eight miracles, only eight miracles, right? And when you only include eight miracles after spending your entire adult life with somebody, then you may want to pay attention to these eight miracles that he's putting in here, because he put this one in here for a reason. He's going to highlight why it is that God performs miracles in our lives. And another important context of this story is that it doesn't happen in front of a large crowd. We're going to get into that in a little bit as well. God doesn't need millions upon millions of people watching to, to display how powerful and how glorious he truly is. Amen? The point of the miracle that we'll see in the scripture is that his disciples will see and believe and that's a very important context as well. We'll get into that as well, right? So John is compiling all of this evidence, right? He's compiling all of this evidence. Like I said before, he's wrapping it up. He's putting a nice little, a little bow on it. He's giving it to you, right? And telling you guys to take it. Now you are responsible for pushing the perspective that you've created God to be to the side and taking what the scripture says that he is, amen? It also says that Jesus did many things outside of these eight miracles that John highlighted. For example, in John 20, verse 30, it says this, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So John is saying here, like, look, I know I can only fit eight. I'm on limited time here. I only got so much ink in my pen. He did stuff all the time, but these are the eight that you guys need to pay attention to. And the reason why he put this one first is very important and very necessary, right? So for the first 30 years of Jesus' life, he was able to be low-key. He was out of the way. Not too many people outside of Nazareth or this small village of Cana even knew who he was. He was able to live in obscurity in a way and out of the limelight. But this is the launching pad, right, to his ministry and to who he is of people truly discovering who God truly is. He's invited to a wedding and we'll pick it up here. John chapter two, verse one, it reads like this. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, let's take a step back. We're about to immerse ourselves into this scene, into this story, so we can truly understand what's going on here. Because we've all heard that story before, right? Amen. So we're all on the same page here. But let's truly understand what's going on. This is a a a wedding. This is a huge, massive event going on here, right? First off, you have to understand what Cana is. Cana is not even a town. Cana is more like a village. We'd be lucky to say that Cana has as many people in his village as the people in this room right now, right? That's how small the town or village of Cana was, right? And Jesus and his mother lived in Nazareth, which was outside of, just outside of Cana. So it makes sense that they were invited to this wedding. Um, you have to understand the context of the times then. People were barterers, everyone needed one another. So for an example, I would raise the sheep, uh, the thick pins would be the one to cut the wool off and make blankets. Um, you would be the farmers. I needed your corn. We would all, our, all trade, barter. Our families would grow up with one another. Our families would marry one another, right? So everyone in this small village knew one another. So it makes sense that maybe they knew Jesus, just speculation. He, his family was... Carpenters by trade, so maybe they needed his tables and chairs for different things. So, everyone knew anything. What we do know is that Jesus, his mother, and the disciples were invited to come down to this to this wedding, right? So, it makes sense that they may have been like some connection to the small village of Cana, right? Another thing is these weddings last for days, right? So our weddings today three four hours. Well black weddings usually last a little bit longer, but you know you get a small you get a small slot, right? But here they would last for days at a time. Days of singing, days of dancing and drinking. And partying it was a huge celebration um, of, of just celebration from my son being raised from a baby to this man your daughter being raised from a beautiful young lady to a beautiful young woman now they're getting married the small village we all know each other as a day long days-long celebration it was also a year in the making right so in this community they had a betrothal period where If I could put it into today's language, it was kind of like an engagement, right? So when my son was ready to get married, he would find his bride. It would take a year before they could even get married and consummate their marriage. Why was that important? The year-long preparation was for the husband, the groom, to make sure he had a house in order, right? A lot of the times he would either buy a house or build a house, right? It was necessary for him to have enough food stored up for him and his bride. Uh, rooms in that house would, needed to be necessary. Maybe they discussed they would have two, three, four, five kids, all of that needed to be laid out. Financially, they had to be stable for years on end for him and his wife to be prepared to handle any type of strife that may come up in their marriage. Um, I hear a lot of the single women in here saying, yeah, y'all need to bring that back, <laughs> right? They need to bring that back, right? So. A year-long preparation, right, to, to uh, prove that he was ready to marry his bride. And what would happen is he would gather all of his family after this year, all of his friends, everyone close to him. They would march down to the bride and to her family, knock on that door, and say, now I'm ready, right? I'm ready to receive her as my bride. And that's when the wedding would get started, right? Right? Um, So that's the the idea, that's the context of what was going on. It was also the groom's responsibility to prepare the wedding as well, right? I heard the woman also saying amen to that as well. The, The groom was responsible for getting the photographer, the videographer, the DJ, the food, to make sure everything was prepared for this wedding. Not only for him and his bride, but everything needed to be prepared for the wedding for the guest, her family, his family, everything needed it to be provided. Herein lies the problem. They ran out of wine. And if they run out of wine, you know what that signifies? It signifies that this man is not yet ready to be a husband, right? It's pretty deep, right? It proves that he's not yet permitted. You had a year, bro. You had a year and you can't get wine for a wedding? Her dad would immediately say, baby girl, nah, that's not him. It's not. He ain't the one. He can't even have wine prepared at a wedding, right? So again, Cana, when you think about that context, is a very small village. It's just us. You know how many people would be talking? You heard what happened to Brian? Yeah. The shame. The humiliation, the embarrassment that comes with that. The groom is incapable of providing for his future bride. So with that context, now we can pick up a little bit more and dive a little bit deeper into the scripture. So it says Mary finds out there was no more wine, which may signify that Mary may have had some some authority at this wedding, right? Maybe she is one of the mothers, and they asked her to come, you know, oversee the wedding because the groom didn't know, the bride didn't know, the families didn't know. It says Mary found out that there was no more wine at the wedding. And at this point in her life, it is hard to know um, what happened to her husband. Maybe he died. And she was used to, at this point, turning to Jesus, right, her son, who's the wisest Most intelligent person she's ever met or ever known, right? She turns to him and now you can hear the anxiety jump off the text. Jesus. Son. They run out of wine. They run out of wine. Right? That's that's the context now. She's this is a problem. The wine is run out. This party is about to be over. It's about to be a lot of disappointed people. This man's life is about to be ruined. Because even moving forward, let's say it doesn't work out, and he tries to marry someone else. No. No, you're not marrying my daughter. Not after what you did to her, right? This would have ruined this man, completely destroyed his livelihood, right? Mary comes up to Jesus. She says, Jesus they run out of wine. And then Jesus' response, right, is kind of cryptic and strange. And it took me years to even understand what he truly meant by it. But Jesus responds with, woman, what does this have to do with me? <laughs> what? He says, my hour has not yet come. Right? And you, you would think, like, Jesus, are you having a bad day, bro? Is a wedding? Maybe you should get some of this wine and relax. <laughs> Woman, what does this have to do with me? Uh, another way of reading into that would be to say, uh, What do we have in common? is what Jesus is saying. Woman, what do we have in common? Now, he's not being rude when he's saying this. Woman, Another translation says lady is not him being rude, but is also not in term of endearment as well, right? Jesus is, he's starting to understand at this point, after this miracle happens, the lid is about to come off, right? I've been able to be low key for the past 30 years. No one else out of Nazareth knows who I am, right? I've been able to be in the background for a long time, his mom comes up to him and he knows at that moment, ah, it's about to go down. It's about to go down. Here it is. Woman, what do we have in common, right? My time has not yet come. And what time is he talking about? He's talking about the time of his death, right? Like everything in the Bible is pointing to the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? He's saying, my time for that moment has not yet come, but he knows this is the launching pad. This is the moment, right? This is the moment where everything is going to change. They were an oral community at that time. They talked a lot, essentially, right? So as soon as this got out, everyone in that region, everyone in that area, everyone on that side of the world eventually would find out who he is, and it was time for him to start marching forward to hang on that cross, Right? And we know that that was the context because of Mary's response. We'll get to that in a little bit, right? But when he says woman, what do we have in common? He's beginning to separate himself from his earthly family, right? He's beginning to separate himself. Even in Matthew, we see Jesus preaching and he's, he's preaching in front of a crowd and then people come in frantically while he's ministering, probably interrupting him and said, Hey Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside. He says, "Who's my mom? Who are my brothers? The ones who do the will of the Father." That's not a concern. Ooh, that's not a concern of mine right now, right? He's separating himself in this moment from his earthly family, and we know that's the context because of who, what Mary said now. I wanna stop here and say this. You moms, especially you moms of of boys, you know your sons, right? You know your sons. My wife has three of them, right? And it's the craziest thing. We'll be sitting there and the four-month-old, my four-month-old son, he'll be, eh, eh. I'm like, what's wrong? Oh, he needs to be changed. I'm like, what? How'd you know that, right? My my one and a half year old, almost two, he'll come up to me. Uh, Abba, Abba, uh, oh she, oh, she, what? He said he want more animal crackers. <laughs> no, he didn't. That's that's not what he said, right? You moms know what your sons are trying to convey at every single moment. It's the weirdest thing. That's a superpower. And Mary did the same exact thing in this moment. When she goes to him and says, Jesus, we've run out of wine. He says, woman, this is not my concern, right? We have nothing in common. My hour has not yet come. And immediately, Mary says, she looks at the servants, y'all do whatever he says. She didn't even, y'all do whatever this man says. She's understanding. In this moment, this man isn't even talking as a man, he's speaking in his authority. He's speaking in his divinity. Y'all do whatever he says. And I know that, I know that Mary was thinking to herself, Woman, oh, you're not, oh. You just called me woman, so I know you're, you're operating in the, the divine right now, right? Can't be talking to me, right? Can, can't be, right? Woman. Wow. She said, you guys do exactly what he tells you to do. Whatever he tells you, do it, right? So Jesus does it. And why does Jesus do it? Uh, Out of respect to his mom, not so much, right? He does it because the miracle, like I said, is a launching pad for who Jesus is and why he performs miracles. We'll get to it. So Jesus asked them, he looks at them, and he says, fill up the, the, you know, the jars. And again, this, these jars have nothing to do with wine, right? They're for purification. They're these huge, what does text say, 20, 30 gallon jars. Um, they were very ritualistic people at the time. They would cleanse themselves over just about anything. I Again, I'm a teacher, I like to give you the little details, but one of my favorite things of learning with ancient scribes was when they would write the, the Old Testament, the Torah, before they even got to the word God in the passage, every time they were about to write Yahweh, they would stop, strip themselves, purify themselves just so they can write the word. Write two sentences, get back to Yahweh, Drop it. Got to purify myself again. They were very ritualistic people. So that's what those jars were for, just for ritual purposes. I need to be clean at all times, right? And everything that I do, I need to make sure that I'm clean and untouched and unscathed before I go before the throne of God in every area of my life. Amen? So that's what it was for. So fill them up, Jesus says. They fill them up to the brim. And Jesus says... Draw the water, so they draw it out. And oh, my Lord. <sniffs> <Ooh. laughs> Potent, right? Jesus had turned water into wine. And the amazing thing about that, the amazing thing about this story is that Jesus' first miracle. Is done in front of kings, queens, royalty, no. It's in front of the people who are working the party. They're not even invited to the party. It's the people in the back with their tuxedos and their hors d'oeuvre trays, right? That's who Jesus decided to perform his first miracle in front of, right? And, and you can imagine them being common folk of a small village, Immediately after seeing what happened, they looked to each other and was like, we got a story to tell. Oh, I can't wait for this is over. I can't wait to tell Pookie what just happened. (laughs) Love to talk. Oral people, I'm going to tell somebody what I just saw. Right? Why do I have to lie? I gain nothing from this. Right? I don't have to lie about what I saw. Listen, that man turned water into wine. Who? Jesus of Nazareth, the guy who builds the tables? Yes, him. There's something different about that one, right? So that's the context of, of what it was and who Jesus decided to do his miracles in front of. Not royalty, not people with influence, no. The common, common folk, right? So they call in the head waiter, right? The head waiter, he comes in and he he tastes it and he, he says, man, go get the groom right now. Go get the groom, I need to tell him about the party that he just set. Go get the groom, the head waiter calls in the, the groom. And he says to him, the best wine is served first, but you have saved the best wine for last. So that's what usually what happen in these parties, right? The best wine they possibly have, they would put it up front Right? And when that's done, they'll go to the mediocre wine, and then after that, they'll go to the bottom-shelf, trashy wine just to end the type of party. And that's how you really knew that the party was over, right? When you start drinking the trash wine, you're like, "All right, come on, get the, get the kids. It's time to go." Right? This is kind of starting to do into all, right? The head waiter says, "We've had some really good wine these past couple of days, but you've saved the best wine for last, right? This groom has now thrown the greatest party ever, where people were partying, having an amazing time, and now the party is about to even go to another level, right? What has Jesus done? He has taken this man's humiliation and shame. He's turned it over for his good. And the man didn't even know. He thought he was prepared, right? He had no idea that this was happening. And all the while, Jesus was working behind the scenes. He knew, the servants knew, his mama knew, and now the groom knows, right? And why did Jesus decide to use this as his first miracle? Only a handful of people, like I said, know about it. And everybody else is still celebrating. No, no one has any idea what's going on but his first miracle is actually a symbol of perpetual joy, right? God wants to tell us that he performs the miraculous to remind us that he is the source of our joy. Even when you don't realize what's going on behind the scenes, right? Even when you think you have it all together, he's reminding us that he's the source of our joy. That's good, right? It's a symbol that he is the source of our joy. And if you understand how at the time they viewed wine... In that, in that region. Like even in Psalm 104, when you come across this scripture, it says wine makes the heart of man glad, right? That's how they viewed wine in that Jewish culture, right? In the ancient texts in the ancient Talmud, some ancient rabbis at the time would even say this. They would say, when the wine runs out, the joy leaves with it. When the wine runs out, the joy leaves With it. So Jesus is saying in this moment that when those things are all gone, right? When those things that you feel are important are all gone, even when you don't feel that miracle coming when you think it should come, He's still the source, right? He is still the source of our joy, right? How many of you guys believe that today that Jesus is the source of our peace? of our joy, right? It all points to him if we'll just plug in to him as our source. Amen. Why does God perform miracles? To show us that he's the source of our true everlasting joy. Amen. So, let's let's kind of make a transition in this, right? Cuz now we understand why he does it. We understand why It's because of nothing we've done, right, nothing we deserve. We fall short a lot of the times, most of the time we fall short, right? He does it as a reminder, but now we have to truly hone in and focus on what we need to do on our part, right, to receive the miraculous in our lives, amen? And we're going to turn the page a little bit to another miracle. It's Miracle Month. We're going to be talking about miracles. Let me compose myself. right? Miracle. Uh, I love the excitement of Miracle Month. Amen. Let's stand in preparation for what God is going to do for all of us in here. I believe it, and I'm standing ten toes down on it. What do we need to do to prepare for these miracles? Amen. Thank you, Jesus trying to compose myself, guys, because, you know, I've been reading this for the past couple weeks, and it still blows my mind every time, because when I look at my life and how undeserving I am, right, and um, he's still willing to show that love and grace on, on a people that's undeserving. It's, it blows my mind every time, right, the everlasting, unchanging love of god right that'll meet us and reach us wherever we are so let's get let's get into the next part of this how do we prepare for this and and we're going to talk about another miracle that we all have heard we all know and it's the feeding of the five thousand, right we're going to understand the nuances that come with this story as well and again it, it just shows us what we need to do as a people in preparation for god's miraculous amen um And this miracle is important because outside of the resurrection, this is the only miracle that presents itself in every gospel, right? Matthew talks about it, Mark talks about it, Luke talks about it, and John talks about it. It's the only miracle that that happens other than the resurrection. Now, how many of you know if God is saying something four times, you might wanna pay attention to this one, right? He's saying, hey guys, this is the one, right? This is the one. I have plenty of miracles throughout my text, but this is the one that's going to show you what you need to do to prepare for those miracles. So I'm going to say it to you four times, and hopefully you get it, okay? That's, that's what God is saying in this text. Everyone talked about it. Everyone wrote it down, and it's, it was that one uh, miracle that was performed in front of thousands of people, right? Some say 5,000 The 5,000. Um, Some say 5,000 men. So you can imagine if if it was 5,000 men, then they had their wives and their families with them. So we'll say 5,000 plus, right? We'll leave it at that. But 5,000 plus. And Jesus, he's going out into the desert. He's going out to minister. And at this point of his ministry, he's he's the man, okay? He's got 5,000 people following him in the middle of the desert. Now, I love Pastor Carrick. And this man hears from God, and he speaks what the Spirit has him saying, but if he said, Cam, we're going to go preach in the middle of the desert, I would think about it. Let me get back to you. I would ignore a couple of his phone calls, and then say, okay, I'll go with you, right? But these people were like, where are we going? To the desert? Let's go right behind you, right? To hear the the word of God manifest, and to see the word of God manifest in their lives, they were right behind them, right? It also says that as the day goes by, the people were getting hungry, and the disciples, they go to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, uh, the, the people are getting hungry, the sun is starting to go down, and Jesus says, okay, well, go feed them, Feed them. What are, you, what are you coming to me for? Go, go feed them, right? And what's going on here? Jesus is showing us the steps of preparing for a miracle, one that gives us fulfillment of joy in our lives. He's going to show us how we prepare for that moment, right? It's a moment. How do you prepare for that moment of the miraculous? You guys ready to receive that? Let's do it. Four steps. The first one is I have to stand here in submission and recognize and admit that I have an unsolvable problem. Now, I'm gonna be blunt with you guys. If you don't have an unsolvable problem, you don't need a miracle, okay? Because if you have a solvable problem, go solve it, right? Go fix it. If this is something you can handle, go fix it. I hear way too often people saying, oh, well, you know, my blood pressure is starting to rise. I, I need a miracle. No, you need to stop eating so much salty foods, okay? Oh, my, my bills are starting to pile up. I need a miracle. No, stop spending so much. If you do not have an unsolvable problem, this is a problem that's way beyond any scope that you can handle. If you don't have an unsolvable problem, you do not need a miracle. You need to make some lifestyle changes, right? The first step is to look at it and to say, okay, it's not unsolvable, right? This is not beyond my scope. God has given me more than enough. He's equipped me with more than enough to handle this problem on my own through his might, amen? If you have a solvable problem, go fix it, right? Let's start with Mark chapter six. And we'll start at verse 34. Admit that you have an unsolvable problem. It's humbling, right? It's humbling to say to yourself, like, look, I do not have the answers, especially of people who are so used to having the answers, right? I know a lot of strong men and women in my life, and they always have the answers, right? But what happens when you get to that point when you no longer have the answers, right? Then you have to stand naked and say, God, I, I, I have no answers, right? I need you, right, in this moment. I have an unsolvable problem. Mark chapter 6, verse 34 Verse 34, it says, When Jesus stepped ashore and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. By now, the hour was already late. So the disciples came to Jesus and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is already late. Dismiss the crowd so that they can go away go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus told them, you give them something to eat. They asked him, should we go out and spend 200 denarii to give all of them bread to eat? Right? So let's stop here. I love Jesus's relationship with the disciples because it just highlights or puts a light on, I don't. I can't speak for y'all, my relationship sometimes with Jesus, right? Especially when I'm bumping into the scriptures like this. But we typically have three responses when you're faced with a problem. When, the, when an issue seems insurmountable, it seems like you can't conquer it, we usually have three responses um, to, to that problem. The first thing we usually do is we procrastinate. We'll just put it off, right? If, if I don't look at it, if I pretend that it's not there, maybe, just maybe, it'll go away, right? We'll procrastinate, we'll put it off. You look at that bill, oh yeah, it's still growing. Let me, let me keep, let me just put it to the back of my mind. If I don't look, I went to the doctor and they said everything was all right, but I kind of kinda feel something. Okay, I'm not going to even think about it. I'm going to just keep putting it off and putting it off, and I'm going to procrastinate and procrastinate. procrastinate, Procrastination makes problems worse. And when we're honest with ourselves, we all have a little bit of procrastination in certain areas of our lives, unless you've overcome it, and God bless you. I remember preaching to my teens a few weeks ago, and I asked them, like, who in here deals with procrastination? And all of them threw their hands up immediately, yeah, I deal with procrastination. Because what happens is, it shows your priorities for one, or lack thereof, but procrastination is a a way, is a defense mechanism to get away from facing the real issue, the real problem, amen? We will procrastinate. And we know that's what the disciples were doing in this story because it says this, by this time, it was late in the day. Okay, fellas. Y'all knew we were going out into the desert, right? Y'all are followers of Jesus Christ. Y'all know he liked to talk long, right? Y'all get out there early in the morning. By this time, it was late in the day. They knew when they were walking out there and they seen the 5,000, how are we going to feed all of these people? You know what? I'm not even going to worry about it. Hopefully, Jesus in early. They can leave early, and they can go feed themselves, right? They procrastinated and procrastinated, and then it says, by this time, it was late in the day. What did, what did they do? They procrastinated, right? They took long to solve a problem that seemed too big or outside of the scope of what they could handle. Amen? If you have an issue in your life that you can handle, deal with it right now. When we leave the service, that that issue or that problem that you're thinking about right now, go face it. Go deal with it. If you need strength from God, absolutely. He's our source, right? But go handle it. Go deal with that issue, amen? It was late in the day. The second thing people will do is we'll pass the blame, right? When procrastination doesn't work, it's still growing. Okay, who can I blame this? So it wasn't me, it was her, right? This is the reason why it's looking like that because she, how many of y'all got the blame passed on y'all? Maybe I like work or something, like something didn't get done to someone's pointing the finger. Or maybe you're the finger pointer, who knows? But <laughs> just maybe, I'm not gonna accuse anybody in here. But we will pass the blame for the issues in our lives. The reason why the issues are happening in my life is because of this. The reason is because of this, without looking at ourselves and saying, no, a lot of that had to do with you. A lot of that had to do with your procrastination. I put it off for so long that now it's bigger than when it was when it started, but now the second thing we do is it wasn't me. It was them, amen? And we know that's what they did because the disciples said, send the people away. Right? Send them away. I didn't ask them to come out here. That's not on me. We were coming out here to pray as the disciples and Jesus Christ, they followed us, Lord, right? That's not on me. They're hungry. That's on them. Send them away. They were about to send 5,000 people away to walk miles late in the day to go get their own food so they didn't have to deal with it. Right After they procrastinated it, right? Send the people away. We will pass the blame. The third thing we'll do is after procrastination doesn't work, after blaming someone else doesn't work, the third thing we do is we start to worry, right? Okay, I've tried to hide from it. I've tucked it away. It keeps showing back up. Then I'm starting to blame this person for it that's not working, Uh, now I have to worry about this because now I have to deal with this thing. I have to deal with it now. It's not going anywhere. Now I have to deal with it. And that's when the worry starts to set in, right? The disciple says to Jesus, after he says, feed them, they they get all economical on Jesus, right? He says, you feed them. And he says, oh, that's gonna take us 200 denarii to feed them. Essentially what that equates to is nine months' salary. They were like, you want me to spend nine months of my salary to feed all of these people? Nah, not happening, I'm a fisherman, right? That doesn't come by easy. Nine months of my salary to feed them, they say absolutely not. They're worried at this point, right? What are we gonna do, right? What are we gonna do to feed all of these people in this moment we have nothing else to do? We can't do that. And you know what the interesting thing is about this story? The interesting thing after they procrastinated after they pass the blame, after they start worrying about how we're gonna feed this people, the whole time they're standing next to Jesus. The very source of their joy. They've seen this man perform the miraculous countless times, John says, so much so that we can't even fit it all into the scripture. They're doing all of this procrastination, passing the blame, worrying, while they're standing next to Jesus. How many times in our lives have we procrastinated, passed the blame, worried ourselves to death, all the while Jesus is standing right there waiting for you to plug into him? He is there with us always. How many of you guys believe that today, right? They're standing next to Jesus. And they can't figure it out, right? The second thing after we admit that we have an unsolvable problem is we have to give God, after standing naked, right? We have to give God what little we have, right? Give God what little we we have. Now, in, in the text, it says, Jesus is responding. He asked the disciples, how many loaves do we have, right? Go and see. Go out into the crowd. And when they found out, they came back and said, Jesus, we found five loaves and two fish, right? We found five loaves and two fish. Now, as my teenagers would say, that's cat. (laughs) For for the older people, cat means that's a lie, that's not true, whatever, but... 5,000 people, five loaves, and two fish. I can imagine when they seen the disciples come in looking for food, they were like, no, nah, they're not about to get mine. Rolled it up. No, nah, I need this for my kids, right? 5,000 people, five loaves? That's one loaf per 1,000 people. No, the only person that had food with them was that little boy. I don't believe that. What I will say is that the little boy was the only one who was willing to give God what little he already had, right? He was like, look, I don't know what you're gonna do with it, but I'm willing to give you what I have. Doesn't look like it's gonna feed these 5,000, but I put my trust in you, right? With this little that I have, right? And he ends up becoming the hero of this story. 5,000 people, right? five loaves and two fish. Now, why did Jesus ask them to go out and get food? I mean, he doesn't need something in order to do something with it, does he? Right? He's Jesus. He can just rain down manna from heaven, feed the 5,000, right? But, and John says he did this to test them. He did this to test them because he already knew what he was going to do. Jesus knew everybody was going to leave here fed, which is why he preached for so long, right? I'm going to feed y'all. Just hold on, right? I got something to say. But he did it to test them. Out of the 5,000, a little boy had his sack lunch, he gave what little he had. Write this down. God always wants to start with what we have. It may not be much, but give it to God. God, I only have a little bit of time, but here it is, right? God, I only have a little bit of finances, but here it is. God, I only have a little bit of talent, but here it is. Use me with what you gave me to give, amen? This is all I have, Lord, but it's yours to have, amen? God always wants to use what little you have because on the other side of the miraculous, needs to be foundational faith, right? You want to experience a miracle, it's it's gonna require some foundational faith. Admit you have an unsolvable problem and give God what little you have, Amen? Amen. amen? Amen. Then after we do that, right? After we stop the worrying, after we stop the procrastination, Right? We need to understand that God always knows the answer before we even know what the problem is, right? The people didn't know it was a problem, right? They didn't know or kind of realize because, again, some of them may have already had their food with them. At that wedding that we talked about, they didn't even know it was a problem going on, right? But God already had the solution before we even know what the problem is. That's how much he loves us. That's how much grace he wants to shed on all of our lives that he's willing to fix the problem before you even know that there is a problem, amen? That's the God we serve, right? We have to put it all in the hands of Jesus. This little boy gives what little he has, takes what little he has, and he gives it to God. In verse 41, it says this. Jesus took the five loaves, amen, and the two fish, and he blessed the food, and he broke the loaves. And then he kept giving them to the disciples, and he, they said it before the people. Again, God takes what little we have, and he uses it for his glory, right? He always wants to show us that, If we're willing to submit ourselves, become naked in front of him, and recognize him as the source of our joy, the source of our peace, just give what he has. Why are you holding on to it anyway? Right? Is it enough to fix that problem? If not, if you have an unsolvable problem, hey, Abba, I need you to to handle that with what little I have because I can't do it with this. I need you to take it and handle that for me. He loves that, he loves it, right? The whole time Jesus I'm sure was at the 5,000 looking at the disciples like, guys, just turn to me. And when they do finally after the worrying, what are we gonna do? Feed them, feed them with what little you have, amen? He loves it. And then we have to have an expectation. I love when I was listening to Pastor Kirk last week talking about an expectation, right? Being courageous in our prayers, but having an expectation attached to it. We have to expect God to multiply it, right? Whenever I come through the doors of this church and go minister to the youth, I have an expectation that lives will be changed, right? an expectation that God is going to perform the miraculous in everything that I do, everything that I touch is going to turn around for God's glory because I have an expectation of the miraculous to flow through me. We're going to get into that in a little bit, right? We have to set an expectation that God is going to take what little I have and multiply it, amen? It says everyone ate, everyone that was there ate, and had enough and then afterwards they collected the 12 baskets full of leftovers wait so you're telling me that people left with doggy bags right they left with more than what they came with again they didn't even recognize that there was a problem but i can imagine the the young boy who goes back home to his small village to his mom and she's like, where'd you get all this food from? He's like, oh, well, you know, the little sack lunch you, you packed me, Jesus multiplied it. Go to your room, that's, and when you're, and then come back out and tell me the true story, right? People are, people are gonna deny the miraculous happening in your life. Amen, it will happen. The people left with leftovers, God always multiplies and provides more than enough. If you let it go, he will multiply it and leave you with more than you came to him with. It's basic nature laws. He's put this into place. If I, place, if I, if I put an apple seed into the ground, what is, it, an apple is gonna sprout out? No, a tree sprouts with hundreds of apples, amen? If you would just give him the seed, allow him to plant it in firm, delicate soil, water it, right? Let it grow. He always leaves you and multiplies it with more than you came to him with, amen? How many of you guys today are holding on to that small, you know, the the small things that you are using to, to tackle a problem? Let it go, right? Just let it go always have an expectation that God is going to multiply it. God doesn't just perform a miracle uh, to satisfy a situation. Let's say it like this. So when we come to God and he performs a miracle, he doesn't just perform a miracle to satisfy that specific situation, right? How many times have people come to Jesus for healing, and he sent them away whole, right? He wasn't, he didn't say you're healed, right? He said you have been made whole. What did he do? He multiplied, right? He multiplied their situation. That's miraculous, that not only what, if I come to God for healing, now my My faith has grown. My expectation and my finances has grown. He makes you whole in every area of your life, not just for the healing, right? What you came to him for, God multiplies it and makes you whole and prosperous in every area, in every arena of your life, if you have that foundational faith, foundational faith, amen, right? God doesn't just perform a miracle to satisfy one situation. He makes you whole in every area of your life, right? He does it to make you whole in other areas as well. This small lunch blessed 5,000 people, and they end up richer themselves when they leave. God loves to use the ordinary and turn it into the extraordinary, right? If we come to God with our ordinary, He turns it around for the extraordinary. And I'll I'll say this. I'll kind of wind down with this. Thank you, Jesus. What we're waiting for God to do for us, right? We're we're constantly waiting and waiting for God to do something for us. All the while, God is waiting to do something through us us, right? You want a miracle, right? You want to see a miracle in your lives? How about we be a miracle, right? That first step to prepare for a miracle is to recognize the issue that needs to be handled, giving God what little I have, and say, God, use me to tackle it, right? That's my expectation, I want to see a miracle, but in order to see a miracle, God is saying, I want to use it through you, right? If you want to see a miracle, be a miracle. Stop waiting for God to do a miracle for us. Ask him to do a miracle through us, amen? That's, that's when we start to change lives around us. Right? That's when lives start to recognize who he is, when we allow God to work through us. And when you allow him to start working through you, that problem doesn't even seem big anymore. Right? That's small. Then you admit to yourself, maybe God, I could have handled that by myself. Right? Submit yourselves. Become naked. Say, God, empty this cup and fill it with more of you right? That's my prayer every single day, that I only fulfill the will of God in my life. God, what is it that you want me to do today, right? How can I serve you today, right?
0: amen i believe today's message encourage you it's strengthen you it's helping you to live the lifestyle of faith if you're ever in the metro atlanta area we love for you to worship with us in person you can find information about our different locations at fccga.com also we have so many different ways where you can get the word you can download our faith plus app you can also visit us on our social media pages on instagram on twitter on facebook